Hello, hello. Welcome to our Japan podcast. Let's welcome Rachel Sievers, an accomplished oceanographic and engineering mechanic researcher. You probably have heard about Rachel since she designed a bio-inspired submersible dual propulsion system mirroring the movement of jellyfish. With which she won multiple awards at Intelisef 2019, such as Shanghai STEM Cloud Center's award in system software, NASA's honorable mention, first award in Best of Category Award, and I love the best word last, which is the Intel Foundation Young Scientist Award of fifty thousand dollars. We're going to expand on the virtual winglet design, and she's not only a triple ISF alumna, but also an eighth place winner of Regenerant two thousand nineteen. And Rachel also attended the Research Science Institute hosted at MIT in two thousand eighteen, and served as a counselor for the Center of Excellence Education. She's part of. Femmes, experimenters, French Honor Society, and Science National Honor Society—just to name a few. We're gonna expand on all of the extracurriculars she is invested in. Rachel also received Girl Scouts of America Silver Award, and not to mention the last, she wears crimson, attending Harvard University class of 2023, studying mechanical engineering and economics. So there's. A lot of topics to explore, and I'm so excited to have her on. Welcome, Rachel, to the podcast. Yes, thank you so much for having me today. I have actually been a huge fan of your podcast, and I am just so excited to be a part of it now. I'm delighted to hear that, and I think the listeners are also so excited to get to know you a little bit more, combined with your really inspiring research work and very creative, I must say, because you're combining two different topics that I think just makes a perfect mix. So, <laughs> first of all,、uh, before diving in deep, what propelled you to pursue science? I love the pun. Thank you.、Um, so for me, I've always been、um, really interested in essentially what makes the world work. So I've always had a deep-seated、um, curiosity, and it hasn't necessarily been towards one specific area,、um, but it's more just I want to know how things work. I want to know how things, you know, work around me and、um, kind of explain the world. Um, my dad and my mom were both、um, engineers. My mom was a computer scientist、um, when they met, and so I have always had mechanical engineering, engineering blood in my veins. I always like to say that.、Um, and my sister, who's three years older than me, kind of—I always say she took after my mom more because she's also a computer scientist, and I sort of took after my dad because、um, he's a mechanical engineer as well. And it's just—it's always been. Just within me to try to figure out things and, you know, learn how the world works and maybe make it better. That's awesome to hear that you've developed this multipolar interest, and I think that's so essential. That you, of course, did not commit to a single area in the very beginning, but you were inspired by your parents and, well, somewhat influenced by your genetic makeup. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> As I could sense, to move into that direction, do you have a specific memory related to engineering of your childhood, or that was a kind of a light bulb moment for you? Oh my goodness! Yes, absolutely. So, I think my probably my biggest research project that I've done、um, 
in my life is the virtual winglet, um, which you mentioned earlier. It's an aeronautics research project in which I created a new airplane wing design. Um, and that actually started six years ago when I was on an airplane and I looked out the window and I saw giant white streaks of air moving over the wings. And I was like, oh my God, we're going to die. I don't know what that is, uh, but it can't be good. And we're going to crash. And it turns out, well, it was just condensation in the air. So and that kind of made me realize, oh my gosh, I have no idea how planes fly. I kind of thought it was just magic. Like I think a lot of people do. And so it was that sort of that curiosity that I talked about before, where I just wanted to know, you know, how does an airplane fly? What was going on in that wing? So when I got home from that trip, I actually built my own wind tunnel in my basement and just started tinkering around, just trying to explore and find out new things. And that's sort of what, you know, propelled me on this whole journey of understanding how airplanes fly, understanding problems with some aircraft designs and trying to come up with a solution. Fascinating. And just as you've mentioned this topic, I think it would be so great to dive deeper into that because airplane designs are continually evolving um, at this moment. And we have to find solutions that can be applied for short takeoff and landing. So is it related to the field, the design you've um, implemented or that you worked on afterwards? Yes, absolutely. So you really hit the nail on the head right there. What I focused on was specifically what are called stall aircraft, so short takeoff and landing, STOL. Um, and these aircraft are typically used um, on aircraft carriers or in military settings. Um, and furthermore, usually these aircraft can't benefit from the typical current solution of physical winglets. So physical winglets are the portion of the wing at the end that kind of flips up a little bit at the end. And they're pretty much used on all commercial aircraft right now, except for on military and fighter aircraft, because they kind of, military aircraft can't risk uh, maneuverability for stability while a commercial aircraft can. And so I decided to come up with a new solution to the same problem of, you know, uh, wingtip vortex creation as well as flow separation and make a, a design improvement that could be used on all aircraft, like you mentioned. And along that process, I learned a lot about um, pressure and air pressure, fluid pressure, all sorts of things about fluid dynamics. And I was able to use that knowledge and apply it to another fluid, uh, water, and actually take that research underwater for submarines for my next project. All right, so I can see the lineup. So that was a follow up after you've, I think, laid a foundation and engineering mechanics and apply it to a different field. And that's why I love science that one skill you learn during a research project can be built into another one. So it's like a whole chain reaction. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> For them, I'm really curious because uh, someone who is not investing in engineering, what is the methodology when you approach these winglet designs? How do you measure flow or speed and compare it to physical winglets to actually extract and receive your results? Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, like I said, this was a really long research project. It was, um, you know, five years at the completion of when I presented it fully realized, and I'm still working on it to this day. Um, but I started out in the wind tunnel that I had created in my basement and I created little models using styrofoam packaging <laughs> left over. And, um, I tested them in my wind tunnel using 
um, you know, little candles or a smoke machine to try to visualize the flow. And I was able to see some really interesting aspects of, you know, aircraft flight and fluid dynamics. Specifically, when you look at an aircraft wing, at the tip of it, these big swirly vortexes or vortices are formed because of the different pressure systems above and below the wing. They meet at the edge. And that's actually a really dangerous and inefficient portion of flow. And I was able to see that right in front of my face in my wind tunnel. And honestly, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and so I was able to continue making new models in my wind tunnel. But I also wanted um, better visualization as well, because sometimes it's really hard to see an invisible fluid like air. So I decided to um, create what's called a flow tank, which is essentially a wind tunnel, but underwater. And you're able to use um, food coloring to dye the water different colors. And that, that was um, really important to me to be able to see specific areas of flow like the boundary layer, which is the layer of air in contact with the wing itself. And in that, I actually started making my own 3D printed models of wings and airfoils. Um, and I got really interested in 3D printing at that time. I built my own 3D printer and it was a really cool way to kind of join two different uh, interests of mine, uh, 3D printing and the research I already had going. So that was the physical manifestation of my testing. And I also, um, along the same time, started doing um, simulation modeling. So on a computer using what's called CFD or computational fluid dynamics. And I was able to basically code uh, my own test cases and run it with super accurate data, which was able, um, which made me able to collect really precise numerical data along with the physical data I was getting. Thank you for walking us through your process because I think we could sense that you had the physical experimentation part and then you had to visualize the part that is unseen to the naked eye and uh, make it really visually explanatory and then transfer all the data that you received into the simulation system on your computer. So you can see the gradual buildup of your research that was awarded at Intel. And I think that was your second Intel when you applied with the virtual ingot or was it your first one? I've actually been to uh, ISEF a couple times. So I actually, start, the first time I ever had been to ISEF was when I was in eighth grade because I was a student observer. Uh, my sister had actually been a finalist that year, and I was able to kind of tag along. And I was just so inspired by the people there. In fact, the person who won that year, which was 2015, was uh, Raymond Wong, who was also an aeronautical researcher. And he was just so inspiring to me. Um, I got to talk to him. And when I saw him up on stage at the very last day, I was so moved because I realized that you know, anybody, regardless of age or, you know, ability or access to materials, anybody can make a difference. And in that moment, I really, I knew that this is what I wanted to do with my life. And I knew that I wanted to be up on that stage just like him. And so a couple of years later, um, I went back to ISEF in 2017, I believe, with the virtual winglet. And then also in 2018, as a continuation project um, with the virtual winglet. And then my senior year of high school, I decided to just do something crazy, kind of, and just start a whole new research project, again, using some of the same ideas, but now underwater with submarines. That ended up being so cool, so much fun, and really interesting. And that's what I brought 
to the um, 2019 um, Intel ISA. And you ended up being on stage and receiving the award, which I think must have been a crazy experience for you. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Cheering on your sister. It's so beneficial that you saw like a real life presentation of scientists who are pouring into the STEM fields and you've had those role models in front of you, um, including Raymond Wong, who is now judging at Inspo Science Canada, and he's now a judge really at a, a virtual science fair. Since you mentioned the project, which was crazy idea deemed from your part, uh, something that you, you know, took a plunge and invested your time and energy in. I'm just really interested to discover by your explanation the connection between seemingly two distinct concepts, you know, a watercraft that mimics a specific underwater creature. Could you tell more about it? Yeah, absolutely. So that project is entitled Dual Prop Parallel. And really all it is is a new propulsion system or something called underwater unmanned uh, vehicles. So essentially submarines that don't have any people in them. And what I found out was that the jellyfish actually actually is one of the most efficient swimmers in the animal kingdom because of its creation of things called vortex rings. So they're little circles of fluid that stay together really well and are able to provide a lot of force for not a lot of energy created on behalf of the jellyfish. So I decided to see if I could try to simulate that with a, um, you know, a rigid body, a submarine instead of an animal. And what I found was that I could use the same principles that I was using in my virtual winglet research. So ejecting high speed, low pressure air in order to what's called entrain or attract other fluid around it. And I was able to manually create um, vortex rings in a submarine and improve the efficiency of the propulsion uh, device, and um, in some cases by up to 12%. And this can mean a lot of amazing things. Um, most specifically, it can make it so that underwater unmanned vehicles um, are able to go longer without having to be refueled or have to make contact with humans, which means that we can explore some of the um, over 90% of the world's oceans that are left unexplored and just learn more about our, our planet that we call home and try to get some of the answers to the world's most pressing questions today. You put it beautifully. <laughs> When you think about jellyfish, real life scenarios, you think about an organism that has, you know, external quo that is squishy and full of water. And then you've applied the dynamics of the movement of a jellyfish to a rigid vehicle, a submarine. What I've um, concluded from that, and I'm asking for your confirmation, you said that you're using high speed and low pressure, so the fluid can enter it easily. Is it because it doesn't require any energy intake, so it works in a more efficient manner, because it comes from higher uh, pressure area to a lower pressure one? Yeah, that's a great question. Absolutely. So essentially what the difference between my design and a normal propulsion design is, is that I created basically this outer cuff, this mechanism that goes around a typical propeller and is able to entrain the fluid more effectively, like you mentioned. So basically utilizing that high speed air that's propelled by a normal propeller, I was able to create specific vortex rings by this um, cuff that I added, and also sort of trigger this chain reaction 
of fluid because I essentially created a secondary chamber, which fills up and also, um, you know, releases water, depending on if water is being ejected or intaked. So instead of having a propeller constantly on, I actually switched it on and then off because when it's off, it actually brings water into the submarine, which provides extra momentum and an added force forward. Amazing. So it's not only bio-inspired, but energy efficient. Yes, exactly. Uh, hearing about all the cool features of your design, I'm intrigued at what is your hope and long-term vision with the project? Are you uh, working on it right now as well? I am currently working on it. I'm actually working on both of my projects simultaneously right now. So um, it's a bit of, of, a, of a kind of cool way to sort of take inspiration from both and see where it leads. But um, with the dual prop parallel project right now, I've actually created a fully functioning prototype of the design. So it's about five feet in length and it uses Arduino um, processing to steer and, and maneuver the, the watercraft. And I'm able to use a little remote control and uh, test it in underwater locations. So I started in my bathtub as any, you know, respectable oceanographer does. And then I brought it to a lake near my house and I'm sort of bringing it up to larger bodies of water. And what I do with that is I'm just trying to test to make sure that the propulsion design works. And also I'm adding new sensors in the front of it. So things like a thermometer or a pressure meter, things like that, just to get some data about the water that it's in. So the alpha version isn't so alpha anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and you're adding more and more to it. And what I like about the bathtub experience is that uh, once they've heard that if you want to make an impact in the world around you, first start off by drawing a circle around you. And I think that it kind of exemplifies the situation that if you want to dream big, start small and then move from that because uh, that will eventually lead you to the results you want to achieve. Exactly. Yes, there are so many things that you can do just small around your house and you have no idea where it's going to take you. You know, my entire journey started like that. Um, and so, you know, just by using the things around you, you, you can make something amazing. Yes, I mean, a lot of research and uh, companies as well, just as Netflix started from a garage. So you, you never know what's going to born out of a college dorm room like Facebook. Yes, exactly. Which was, I think, was a brilliant film, The, the Social Network. Um, I think especially for computing engineers, computer science majors, it's very inspirational. Yes, that is one of my favorite movies. And something funny about that now is I go to Harvard. So I kind of see that movie in a whole different light than I did when I first saw it. And um, Facebook was actually invented in Kirkland House. And I am now living in Elliott House, which is right next door to it. So it's kind of this uh, perpetual inspiration to me when I look out and I see, you know, Kirkland House next to me. And it's just like, wow, think about Facebook was founded there. So it's really cool, really inspiring. That's amazing. So you're walking there, Mark did. <laughs> and since you mentioned it, um, on a 1 to 10 scale, what would you say if, you know, 10 is something uh, that Harvard is exactly like it's portrayed in the movies and zero that it's not at all, where would you place it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would place it at, for me at least, I, I don't know, like maybe like a mid, like a seven probably, because there are a lot of very accurate depictions that are in that movie. Um, 
I think that they really get a lot of the culture surrounding, um, I would say, like innovations and business and startup, right? But I think at the same time, they also kind of exclude a huge part of Harvard, which is the actual community that is formed with the undergraduates. So my experience at Harvard, and I've only been there a year, but um, has been one of the best years of my life, is that everyone there um, is so incredibly gifted, you know, and talented, and they have something that they want to give the world. And so every single person that you meet, whether it's the person that you sit down next to at lunch or somebody in your class or someone that you just pass on the street, you know that you have the potential to work with that person and change the world. And it's just this whole new perspective that you get on life. Um, You know, there's this quote from Bill Nye the Science Guy, I believe, although I'm sure many people say it, but it's um, everyone in the world knows something you don't. And I've always tried to live by that idea. And I always try to give back to my community. But something that's also important with that is is working together with the people around you to create the most benefit and the biggest impact. That is so true. And I love how you've expanded on all the wonderful gifts that Harvard has presented you in your first year. Because it's really is true that your environment affects your personal development and also how you interact with others. If you have that critical mass in terms of, you know, intelligent conversations and inspiration from your peers can be so galvanizing. And of course, you have your unique set of gifts, your individual blueprint. But when you are in an environment full of inspirational students, um, that's a totally different feel. Yes, exactly. And for me, I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm I'm here right now in quarantine. Um, and and for those of you who know, Kentucky is a a very rural state. Most of it is um, extremely rural. I'm I live in Lexington, which is a very suburban. Um, area. And so I'm lucky to have a large research um, university here, which draws a lot of, you know, research to the area. Um, But 15 minutes from my house in either direction, and um, you do reach um, areas where there aren't a lot of access to resources or to research and things like that. And I just want to say, you know, for people who are listening to this, maybe who come from those areas, or who maybe don't have access to the best resources, um, the biggest resource out there is other people and anyone out there can make a change or an impact on the world or just explore things that they are interested in. You know, you don't have to have access to a fancy lab. You don't have to have, you know, all the money in the world, although those things certainly help. It, it really comes down to the passion that you have towards something and curiosity to the world. And, um, you know, anybody can make a change. Anybody can find out something new. It's a very valid point because I think that uh, many might fear how professors would react uh, if you come up with a with a new idea and you have to present that, or you don't even know where to start. But um, especially the physical limitations during quarantine showed us that online communication can be so effective. So, like connecting with professors, even if you don't go to that university, email them, take that big leap of faith, and I think you never know what can come out of it. Because my experiences is that they are more open than uh, we stereotypically imagine them to be. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think that we're really blessed to work in a field like research or science, because one of the biggest things of research is failure, is making mistakes, because that's what experimentation is. It's learning. Um, And, you know, it's easy to say, oh, 
mistakes are made, but learn from them from somebody who's already made the mistakes. Because I get it. Mistakes are frustrating. I've made more than you can count. But we're in a situation, we're in an area of research where that's okay. And you can learn from them and you can grow. And that's where innovation comes from, you know? So I would say, you know, and for me, this is really hard for for me to say because it took a long time for me to learn this myself. But, you know, failure is okay and it should be appreciated. And just just let go and and explore. And you never know what you're going to find. And what was a a mistake that you made, the transformative experience? Or was it like a gradual buildup that you get to this point that it's okay to make mistakes? Talking about mistakes, yeah, I think there's two pivotal moments in my research that really define this property. And so the first is when I was starting out in my research, I was basically exploring this thing called the ground effect, which is a property of aircraft that when they're flying near the ground, the ground plane itself acts as a barrier for wingtip vortices to be formed. And so I was thinking, well, maybe there's a way that I could simulate this effect at higher altitudes by creating a fake ground plane in the air um, by using compressed air. Uh, Turns out, totally not how it works at all. Um, Definitely doesn't work. Uh, But by that, I was able to find out that high-speed air actually has low pressure, which is something I never even thought about before. And I was able to apply that knowledge, come up with ways to manipulate air and manipulate air pressure to attract other fluid, which is what kind of um, led to the virtual winglet and led to my different projects. And so without failing in that first regard, I wouldn't have ever made it to where I am today. If you wouldn't have failures in your projects, you wouldn't achieve better results. Even failures or um, parts and details about your research where something deviates from what is expected, from what is normal, is actually a factor of validation to your project. When someone sees, I think, from a judging perspective as well, a 100% perfect project without including the moments you had to improve on your design is kind of a major red flag. Yeah, exactly. And for engineering projects specifically, um, obviously the, uh, you know, the science research process that is very typical of science fairs still stands. But I think that what's really special about engineering projects in particular is that we kind of spend a lot of time in the engineering design loop. So it's essentially a circle where you just keep making small changes on your prototype or on your design, seeing what happens and starting again and making new projects. And my design, the virtual winglet now, is about the 1,000th iteration of my original idea, but it's those small changes and learning from them that will culminate in a really um, amazing breakthrough. And it feels so good when you finally make that breakthrough. Absolutely. And it's a journey of growth because those little mistakes eventually add up and um, create the design that you wanted to achieve but still you have to be present in that micro environment so you receive the macro results or the macro goal that you set for yourself talking about those projects there is an essential part to this podcast, which is the ice of experience and also the regenerant experience in your case. So what did being part of the Society for Science and the public experience represent to you? Absolutely. This is honestly a huge part of my life. Um, and like I mentioned before, ISEF has always been 
a part of my life for the last um, five years or so, even longer. What I think it represents to me is, you know, hope for the future, because there are so many amazing, brilliant young researchers out there. And then we all come together at ISEF and we share that work and we inspire future generations. Um, and for those of you who have been to ISEF who are listening, you know, it may seem like sometimes you're shouting into the void or if you didn't place, it's really frustrating because the first time that I was a finalist, I didn't place at all. And it's really frustrating sometimes, but I want to say that, you know, you may not know it, but there are people out there who are looking at you um, and who are being inspired. And, you know, I'm firsthand, you know, an example of that because I was a student observer I was looking at all the incredible projects and people that were there and I was being inspired. And, and, and that's what, you know, really put that spark inside of me. So you really don't even know the impact that you're having on the people in the community around you. And I think that's such a wonderful, wonderful place to, to have all those people come together. And with Regeneron, you know, same thing, just it's a lot more personal, I think. So with Regeneron Science Talent Search, it's um, a much smaller group, only 40 people. Um, and you're able to learn so much from each other and get a lot of um, connections. And it's really just an incredible community. And you gave an inspiring speech at Regeneron. Um, and I think that it's so essential that you're invested in science, scientific communication from that part, that you can share your story, how you were inspired by so-called, you know, ISO seniors looking back at a timeline impacting the current and the future generations of young researchers. Definitely. So I was selected as Seaborg speaker for my class at STS, which means that we essentially voted on who to represent our um, year. And I was really shocked when I was chosen or when I was selected to be the speaker because I I really wanted it, but I never really um, you know thought of myself as a science communicator or something like that, just because I had never done it before. And when I got up there on that stage, I was actually shaking so much backstage. I was so nervous that the people backstage made me sit down because they thought I was going to faint, actually. Um, and then when I got out on stage and I looked out and I saw 800 plus people in the audience and I knew my parents were there, but I couldn't see them because they were so far back. Um, I just in that moment, I realized that I have been given a platform. And I have been given an opportunity to share my story and to inspire others. And you don't even need a huge stage with an audience to do that. Each one of us in the science and research field, we are given that same opportunity to share our story, to inspire others. And I think that is a responsibility of us. And, um, you know, doing research is obviously amazing. It's fulfilling. And the actual data could clearly save someone's life. but doing research and not sharing it with anyone, I think that defeats the purpose of doing research in the first place. So a huge component of research, of science, um, is communication and sharing what you did with the world. Because um, if you're just shouting into an echo chamber, you know, no one's going to hear you. And we need the world to hear us, especially in these really um, uncertain and difficult times.
thinking from a professional point of view, an outsider point of view, I think it's better that you had anxiety before going on stage than in the reverse manner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> And also it's so true about sharing that there is still this stereotypical concept of sharing your project with others that, you know, when you tell about it to a person, it will reduce the quality or the value of your project. But I think it just multiplies. It's even more because you get feedback um, and you receive an outsider's perspective. And like a diamond has many angles and as you turn it around the light is reflected in a different manner so it's still the same object but you get a different perspective of the same thing exactly yes i couldn't have said it better myself uh, science is a team sport really and um as much as i am an independent researcher and as much of the research that i did i did myself i still benefited greatly from talking just talking, you know, to other people and seeing what they have to say. Oh, did you try this? You know, stuff like that. And I've just learned so much and have grown so much from those, you know, small comments, small conversations. Um, I think that science fair is inherently competitive. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I'm a very competitive person. It pushes me to grow and to work harder. But at the same time, science shouldn't be inherently competitive. What you're doing is to help other people, you know? So when we're gathered at ISEF, yes, at the end of the day, it is a, com a competition. But take a look around. See what other people are doing. Um, and once we work together, you know, all sorts of new things could come from that. I've made some of my best friends and closest um, collaborators um, at science fairs and you know those are connections that I'll never um, let go of and who knows what will come of them. It's so great to hear the the impact of science fairs in your lives and I can totally attest to that fact that of course when you are in competition mode you are in that specific headspace but I think that you're able to separate the two experiences because once the judging is over you just open up and discover the amazing projects others are working on and that essentially just a bit shout out to the podcast and to all the people who have been there inspired me to shed light on the humane aspect of research and and the STEM fields and then move into you know bringing this network um, STEM pool on, on Shark Tank and and getting the message out there of this philanthropic business I'm working on to create essentially more opportunities for researchers and impacting the sectors that science has an immense power to transform. I just saw that on your Instagram by the way and congratulations on that again. I think that it's really you know it's you and other people people who are working to create a safer and more, um, you know, involved science community, which is what's making, you know, the world a better place. When it comes to youth involvement in science and STEM, specifically girls in STEM, um, you know, a lot of times people just don't feel like a part of the community. They feel very intimidating because it is a very intimidating field for certain, like every time that I go to ISEF, every time that I went to ISEF, you know, I look at all the people, all the projects, and I'm like, oh my goodness, do I even belong here? And yes, the answer is yes. Every single person that walks through those doors belongs there. And, you know, making a safe and inclusive scientific community, regardless of age, gender, experience, anything like that, um, is what is important. And it's what 
we need to do. And I, I thank you and everyone else who is who's working hard to do that. And I thank you too for the statement and for your kind words. And you are part of the Girl Scout movement. You're part of STEM Femme. I'm just so intrigued to hear your take on women in STEM and what would the stereotype be that you wish to alter? Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Girls in STEM, women in STEM... This is such an important issue to me, and um, I've lived firsthand through all sorts of the different facets of being a woman in STEM and what that means. So the story that I always use is that when I was at ISEF um, two years ago, so not this past year, but um, two years ago, I looked down my aisle, and I'm in engineering mechanics, and there was only one other girl in the entire aisle of projects. Um And that's really scary, you know, for someone who looks around and feels like an outsider. Sometimes you're intimidated and you kind of want to just go back into your shell and, you know, blend in. Everyone wants to blend in. But science is about sticking out and, and, you know, making a difference. And you can't do that if you're all acting and thinking the same way. And that's what diversity of thought and diversity of people, that's why it's so important You know, if we're all, if we were all raised the same way, if we were all taught to think the same way, if we all shared the same perspectives, no innovation would be done. There would be no room for innovation. That's why it's so important to include minority voices, to include women in STEM, to include, you know, people of color in STEM. It is so important. And I hope that we continue to grow as a community to be more inclusive in that way. Because, you know, so many innovations, so many inventions and theorems and improvements in our life wouldn't be around today if it weren't for those different perspectives. Um, And I think that's something that we need to rejoice and appreciate in science. And so that's what I try to do um, as a woman in STEM. Like I said, growing up, I had my sister. And if I didn't have my sister, I probably would not even be in STEM today. Um, she is a computer scientist and just being able to see her and look up to her on a daily basis and know that someone is out there working hard and, you know, being a woman in STEM, even though it's difficult sometimes, I was able to keep going when things got hard. And I was able to keep going when I was the only girl in my physics class, um, you know, and stuff like that. So I was able to have that role model. So all the things that I do, I try to be a role model for other young girls who maybe don't have a sister or don't have a parent in STEM. And I want to show people that you can do it too, um, you know, because I did it and I'm just a normal person. And if I did it, then you can do it too. So I started a group called... Um, STEM Femmes, as you mentioned, which does outreach programs in my area, uh, in underprivileged communities and schools. And we just bring super cool science experiments. And um, I was able to teach a lesson about airplanes and I brought some of my models to the school and I let the kids launch them and they just had a blast doing that. And it just really the point is to show kids that science is fun, science is cool, and um, science is inclusive. I'm more than overjoyed to hear that First of all, yes, there's still the, the stereotype that if something is different, it's considered to be odd, but we should embrace our unique and individual makeup because even in educational systems and approaches, 
there's a saying, I believe, from Albert Einstein that you cannot teach a fish to fly and you have to approach everyone from personalized perspective. And I think it's so great that you have your sister in front of you as truly a role model, but you didn't stop there, but you want to give advice to younger girls and that's why I had the idea that as a big sister you know to young girls wishing to pursue science or who are already invested in the STEM fields what would your advice be to them what would your message uh, be to those young innovators just be yourself and don't be afraid to um, roll your sleeves up get your hands dirty and go to the problem the way that you think about it um, I cannot tell you the amount of times that, you know, I've been told that I shouldn't be working with a power tool or, you know, I should let my dad do some of the, you know, engineering work that I was doing, um, you know, and people come, I don't want it to seem like, you know, people are inherently sexist when they say that, um, it's, they really do have like my best interests at, at heart. And I think that that's where a lot of, you know, differences come from. Um, but you need to take a back, take a step back and think about what is that teaching that young girl when you ask her to, you know, put the tool down and let her dad do it. I think we need to be teaching younger generations how to do these things and being encouraging of their interests um, and, you know, make sure, of course, that they're safe, but create an environment where learning, making mistakes and growing from them are acceptable and are ordinary. Um so for all the young girls out there, especially young girls in engineering, you know, just keep going, persevering, and don't listen to the people who say that um, you can't do it or that, you know, the strong boys can do it better. Um, you know, you can do it. Anyone can do it. And, um, you know, that's what makes innovations. Yes. Showing is essential, but just as you said, that hands-on learning is really the key here because uh, if you do it yourself, the efficacy of memorization just skyrockets by 90%, and it's so essential that they truly experience those parts of research. You've had other outreaches as well, like hosting science fair clinic and uh, mentoring for children or supervising donation programs. Could you expand on your philanthropic work and what your takeaways are from these involvements? I'd love to. An aspect of science fair itself that is oftentimes ignored, I think, by people is that it's actually very expensive. And, um, you know, the really fancy boards and the really fancy equipment and making a, you know, a display that is, you know, um, aesthetically pleasing and all that, it, it costs money. Um, and so... I think that that intimidates a lot of people who are from lower income families or from lower income areas. Um, but I think that it's important to know that, you know, all of that is just kind of fluff on top. And really the science beneath it is something that anyone can do. I said this before, you know, anybody can make a change in the world. And I don't want money to be a factor that's stopping the next great genius in their tracks. So for me personally, when I was in high school, we, um, me and my friends created this thing called a science fair clinic where we invited any student who is doing science fair to our high school library and we fed them pizza and we had boards, we had 
borders, we had paper, anything you could need to make a board, science fair board. And we helped them, you know, and we were able to get them the supplies they needed at no cost to them and was able to bring those people to the science fair, the district science fair the uh, next month. And lots of those kids ended up placing and it was just the best feeling ever to know that these kids were passionate about what they were doing and that they were able to compete um, because of the resources that were provided to them. And so because of that, we started thinking, well, what are some other ways that we could help? Um, And so we started collecting old science fair boards from people who had used them before and no longer need them. And uh, mostly a lot of trifold boards, mostly a lot of paper and borders and things like that. Any kind of old um, experimentation equipment, we all collected that and was able to distribute that to some schools and some kids who uh, wouldn't be able to normally afford that. I love the concept of full clinic because it truly reflects on the message that a patient goes into a clinic if they have a problem or they are lacking in some aspect. And you actually filled those voids and the students who enter the science fairs ended up placing and really being those vibrant and from a judging perspective, a whole rounded participant uh, on those platforms. So it's, it's a very cool concept. Yes, and it was really fun too. And I think that's also important. You know, science is fun. And um, a lot of times, you know, kids stuck in a classroom might get scared of science. I mean, for me, I absolutely hated math growing up because I could not do it in a classroom setting. And once I started realizing that math is all around us and that there's different ways to use it and explore it, I started really enjoying it. And so bringing science to these young kids in a different way, in a way that's fun and has, you know, food and music playing. I mean, what could be better than that? And it's just a really cool way to share science with the community. Yeah, that that kind of struck me in the beginning, just as you started expanding on mathematics, because you need a quiet deal of mathematics in engineering majors. Yes, you do. Yes. There are still memes, you know, floating around on the internet that pi equals to three, but we ditch those. You don't do that at Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. Um, Harvard has really taught me how to, um, you know, learn and enjoy different subjects that I typically, um, you know, wouldn't like because I was able to see it from a new way um, and be able to explore it in a sort of risk-free environment. So, you know, math, the way that we teach it in the United States right now um, and a lot of countries is very memorization based. It's testing based. And I have really bad anxiety. So I'm a horrible test taker. And so my entire life, I thought I was really bad at math because I just couldn't take tests. Um, And it wasn't until I learned that there were other ways to um, explore and assess mathematical ability that I really started to enjoy it. And I stopped, you know, fearing it so much because I think a lot of people have math anxiety or, um, you know, are scared. But it is really fun and it is super cool once you, you know, sort of let go of that fear and start just exploring it. Absolutely. Yes, like, I think that when it comes to approaching mathematics, uh, if something can be explained in an an easy manner, sometimes teachers put on extra stuff. So it's translated in a very difficult and complex way. And you just close the book and never care about it. But what was 
skill that you've acquired that helped you to get to the transformative experience of, you know, the enlightenment of, of mathematics and truly understanding the concepts? Uh, yeah, uh, that's a great question. So for me, I was able to apply a lot of ideas to my research that I was doing. And so that was a way that I was able to sort of understand things um you know, better and more accurately. So for example, like you mentioned, um, engineering is so intertwined with mathematics, um, specifically, you know, with aerodynamics and things like that. There are the Navier-Starks equations, which are very famous differential equations, and they basically explain fluid flow. And I was able to say, oh, differential equations. I've heard of those before. Um, you know, and it was, I was able to apply those ideas to concrete examples and, um, you know, think about what it could be. And by the way, there's a contest, you know, an ongoing contest that if anybody can solve those equations, you get like a million dollars, I think. So if that's not motivation to explore math, I don't know what is. Wow. Now the emoji pops up with dollars uh, in the yes, eyes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, differential equations can be a pain in that specific body part, but... <laughs> <laughs> It, it can be a truly motivating factor and a very math-focused institute that you've attended during the summer is actually MIT, where you could uh, meet world-renowned professors and Nobel laureates. So um, before wrapping up, it would be so cool to hear you share your highlights reel of the RSI experience. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'd be more than happy to do so. So RSI, the Research Science Institute, is so important to me and so pivotal to my um, development as a scientist and genuinely as a person. So when I went um, the summer before my senior year, I was a very shy, very, um, you know, independent uh, junior in high school, and I was so scared to go. Um, I literally was like um, shaking, and I was so nervous to go the day that I moved in, and I um, really didn't know if I was going to make any friends or what it was going to be like. Um, coming from Kentucky, there's not a huge scientific community. And so I didn't really have a lot of experience working with other young researchers or young scientists. Um, and I must say, I couldn't have imagined what it would have been like. Um, it ended up being one of the best experiences of my entire life. I met, um, you know, my best friends there, and they all shared my same interests and passions and we were able to connect on a level that I had never connected with anybody before um and for me um you know you you get put into these these counselor groups at RSI and I didn't think of it as a counselor group I thought of it more as a family because we really connected um on so many levels and I say this a lot um, and this, you know, this applies to any camp, regardless of if it's a research camp or a music camp or anything. When you go to an area where everyone is the research kid, you know, my entire life, I was always the research kid, the science fair kid, you know, that became my personality. But when you go somewhere where everyone shares that personality, you're really forced to sort of introspectively understand, you know, what are my other interests? What are my other passions? And you get to you know, fully blossom and be your true self and not be defined by that label because everyone kind of shares that label. And it is just an incredible environment. 
And so much so that I, I loved it so much that I came back the next year as a counselor and I was able to sort of pass the torch in a way and help other students who were just as nervous, probably going through the same things that I was going through and be there for them in this important transition in their life and um, be able to facilitate that amazing, um, you know, experience. This is incredible to hear. Here, a lot of my friends who were who consider themselves a bit, you know, introverts in the beginning, that they can attest to this fact that the research community actually helped them to open up and create new connections with people. Oh my goodness, absolutely, yes. And one of my favorite memories of RSI itself, um, besides the research, which was honestly phenomenal, I ended up working for Boeing, essentially a subsidiary of Boeing. But one of my favorite parts of RSI is, you know, the social aspect. And I like I said, was very shy before I went. And um, by the end of RSI, I have this picture of me sticking my head in the Charles River, which is the river next to MIT, something I would have never done before. Um, but I was just able to open up and have fun and, you know, be funny and kooky with my friends. And it, it was just a really great experience. That is so great. And I think it's also related to the fact that the external pressure that is uh, put on you by other people placing several hashtags that you, you're the research kid or you're invested in A and Z. Uh, but when it comes to meeting people with the same passion and interest, I think there's a separation between doing and being. Like research, of course, is something that defines your interests, but not necessarily who you are as an individual. It affects it, but your being is still an entity, if you know what I refer to. Yes, that is so true. Um, I think you put it perfectly. Um, every person who does research, obviously, that is a huge part of their life, you know, especially for me. Um, time-wise, my research took up a lot of my time in high school, and I wasn't able to go to a lot of the, you know, the homecoming dances or things like that. I, I had to miss those for research, but I still was able to, you know, um, make connections with friends, and especially in these, you know, forums like ISEF or RSI, where everyone kind of shares that same experience, you're able to really open up and to um, explore yourself and in as a person and you know learn um who you are and what you stand for yes it's a thing that you know you miss the homecoming dance but you dress up fancy to regenerate so yes uh someone called uh sts the final gala um award ceremony someone called it um science prom and i was like oh that's so true um you know it is so fun getting able to be you know being able to get dressed up and I had my hair done and, you know, makeup. And I think that's also a really good example of people supporting each other in the scientific community because um, all the girls at SDS, we um, got ready in some kind of this forum area there. And each time a new um, girl came in from her hair appointment or for, from her makeup appointment, you know, we all got up and clapped and we were, and we were just so supportive of each other because, you know, even though it was a competition and, we were all sort of competing against each other, we had become such close friends. And, um, you know, we got to know each other as people instead of projects. And that is something so valuable and something that you'll never lose. So you are not only gold diggers, but glow getters. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs>
Um, actually, I also remember like with the makeup and hairstyle um, aspect, um, I did some of the girls' makeup uh, when we prepared for a formal event with my research friends and that was such a cool experience, you know, having that girly aspect that it's your research too. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is something that is also really important to me. So I always say that I... I try to keep my femininity in a masculine field. So I think that a lot of times people, especially women in STEM fields, try to blend in and, you know, um, they wear suits and don't wear makeup and things like that. Um, and that's totally fine. You know, women, you know, we should dress and act how we want. But at the same time, I always try to, you know, preserve how I feel and how I want to act. So I'm a person, I love lipstick. I have like a, a hundred lipstick collection and I love doing makeup and I love wearing high heels. And so that sort of came my trademark style because I always wanted to preserve that in a field where I felt a lot of pressure to blend in to masculinity. Um, you know, and so for those of you who are at ISEF who have seen pictures of me on the stage, you know, I have those ruby red high heels on and a lot of people like always comment on that. Like, oh, I liked your high heels. But, you know, that those were so important to me because um, I love high heels and I wanted to show, you know, girls that you can wear high heels and you can still be a really cool boss scientist. That is so great. The girl at the red high heels is now yeah. a marker and a virtual high five to you because I cannot agree with you more on that. Thank you. You know, bringing up Harvard again, but it's so true on this. Um, when Legally Blonde came out, I think it was revolutionary because you saw that um, Harvard Law students were wearing tweeds and um, gray materials, but there came out Woods in her bright pink and um, shaming on orange. <laughs> exactly. So this is another example of, you know, a different perspective solving an issue. So if Elle wasn't there in the final scene, if she hadn't known about hair care and perms, you know, they wouldn't have been able to solve that case. And so this, although a fictional and kind of funny example, is an example of someone coming in with a different perspective and being able to shine new light on a subject. And um, for me, Legally Blonde is so important, especially now that I go to Harvard. I was able to, um, actually, they did a screening of the movie on Widener, which is our big library's steps, and all the freshmen came and watched it on, the, like, the first day of class, and it was just, it brought tears to my eyes, honestly, the, you know, the part where she goes, what, like, it's hard, um, after being asked if she goes to Harvard, you know, we all said it together, and it was really a momentous occasion, because, yeah, it is hard to go to Harvard, and we work hard, just like Elle worked really hard in that movie, too. But, you know, you can't, you finally get to relax and enjoy that gratification of all the work that you put into it. This is genius that you're also keeping that cinematographic tradition as well in the community. Yes. Fattest <laughs> move from her as well, because later in the film, you find out that her ex-boyfriend Warner actually got in uh, with his father's help, not on his own terms. So it totally makes a difference. Yes, actually. And so something else I want to bring that up, um, you know, obviously Warner in the movie had help from his father, but he was originally waitlisted. And I was actually originally waitlisted from Harvard. Um, I was deferred early and then waitlisted. And um, I don't, I really feel like I need to share that story with a lot of people because um, I, you know, never gave up. 
never, ever, 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 ever gave up. I was actually committed to Stanford um, on May 1st when I had to make my decision. And then a couple of weeks later, actually, this is so funny, on judging day of ISEF, I was there in between getting judged and I looked at my phone and I had an email from Harvard and I was like, what is this? And it was my acceptance letter off the wait list. And I literally jumped for joy in the uh, convention hall um, at ISEF. And I was, it was just the best day of my life. Um, and so, you know, for those of you who are on the wait list or find yourself on the wait list in the future, never give up hope because, you know, if you work hard, if you show them that you want to be there, people can feel that passion and, and they know that you're meant to be there. Um, and, but I'd also like to say that when it comes to colleges, you're going to end up where you're meant to be. You know, there's a plan for you. And um, whether it's if your next business partner is at the other school or something like that, you never know. Um, and you're going to end up where you're meant to be. Absolutely. And that really is the definition of double surprise. <laughs> I know, right? Literally that day I got into Harvard and then two days later I ended up winning the Young Scientist Award. So it was just literally the best week of my life I've ever had. Um, and it was so cool. Amazing. And there is a question on the podcast um, as you're reaching its end, but I really enjoy hearing all of your perspectives. And we've had different dinner guests all over the world from different fields. And the question is a hypothetical one. If you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, who would you choose and why? Um, so I actually have a couple different answers to this. Um, my, my junior English teacher in high school asked me this question and I said Raymond Wong because he was my biggest inspiration in my life. Um, and up until that point, I hadn't ever met him, um, you know, besides that ISEF and he was really inspiring to me. So I said him. And then that year I was actually invited to speak at a conference called the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. Um, and Raymond was there too. And I got to meet him and I was like, you have no idea. I'm like your number one fan. Uh, I probably freaked him out a little bit, uh, but I was able to meet him and, ha and have a meal with him. And it was literally a dream come true. So um, for that, I had that answer, but I've kind of satisfied that already. Um, but for someone else, um, absolutely uh i'm really inspired by any female researcher but um in particular i i'm probably gonna mess up her name but fabiola gionati who is the um leader of cern the particle lab um and i really am inspired by her because she is someone who started out in the music field and humanities and sort of transitioned into a very heavy stem field and I really like how she sort of brings those two together and is able to show people that you can do both. And she always writes her reports in Comic Sans, the font, and I love how she doesn't take herself too seriously and brings some joy to the science community. How cool it would be, just deducted from your encounter with Raymond Wong, that a few years from now, if we catch up in our conversation, you would be telling me that, oh, I just recently met Fabiola. That would be so cool. <laughs> For the world of uh, particle physics. <laughs> <laughs> now comes uh, the this or that game. So, of course, you got to choose either or. Awesome. So, the first one, very casual, coffee or tea? Oh, tea. I love the idea of coffee, uh, but I just can't stand the taste. I always try it, especially when I was at RSI and wasn't sleeping, but can never stand the taste. <laughs> Yes, I can understand it. I mean, it smells great, but it's yeah, kind of sour. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
It might be a hard one for you, but I'm really interested in your take. Traveling by ship or airplane? Oh my goodness, that is so hard. Um, probably airplane, just because I always learn something new every time I'm on a plane, and I always spend literally the entire flight looking at the window, staring at the wing, um, and it's just always fun for me to try to learn and observe as much as I can, so probably plane. Yeah, mentally measuring the velocity and different parameters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like trying to, oh, look, they just moved that flap down. That means that we need to slow down, something like that. It's always so fun. <laughs> yeah, you know, people sitting at you, they don't even know that uh, they get to sit with an expert on airplanes. <laughs> I know. And I, I always love when there's like turbulence and people are like freaking out. I'm like, oh, actually, it's just, you know, pockets of air being heated differently, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, how do you know that? And I'm like... Oh, it's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember actually like being a kid, I put my hands up in the air when we were in turbulence because I thought that, you know, it's such a spontaneous experience, but others did not think that much. <laughs> exactly, yes. And the next one is bungee jumping or swimming with sharks. Oh, wow. Oh, man. So... I'm probably gonna have to go with swimming with sharks on this one because I'm actually I I love sharks they're one of my favorite animals um and I'd love to learn more about them um but also maybe there's a, a potential that I could see some jellyfish at the same time so I'm gonna have to go with that one okay <laughs> <laughs> it depends on which species because they have some toxic fellows in their family <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly stay away just admire from a distance <laughs> yeah no for blue ones for sure <laughs> and the next one is chocolate or vanilla ice cream man that is so hard um my favorite that's so hard because my favorite ice cream flavor of all time is half baked by ben and jerry's which has both vanilla and chocolate ice cream in it um so i'm gonna have to go the middle road on that one and say ben and jerry's half baked it has everything you could ever ask for <laughs> yes it's like uh, i remember this joke that uh, do you have a boyfriend and uh the response is yes i have actually two ben and jerry in my life <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> last one is traveling to europe or asia oh this is a great question so for me i have to choose um traveling to asia my boyfriend, Andy, is from China originally. That's where his family is from. And is most of his extended family is still there. And, um, you know, he's really important to me and his family is really important to me. And so um, one day I really hope that I get the chance to travel to China and meet his family. But another goal that I have for my life on my bucket list is to actually visit all of the different Disney parks because I am the biggest Disney fan ever and um i have been to disneyland and disney world but i haven't been to any of the other abroad parks so i still need to make it to shanghai hong kong um paris and um the other parks at those places too that is amazing is your boyfriend also <laughs> invested in research yeah so he's also a mechanical engineer he is studying right now at vanderbilt university um, and so when we're at school, we're far away. Um, but right now in quarantine, we're both originally from Lexington. And that's how we met. So it's actually been nice because um, he's just right down the street from me now, as opposed to thousands of miles away. That is so cool. 
and that you <laughs> both share the same passion for research because it's it really is a bonding link uh, between people um, and it also applies to relationship as well. Ever going to visit China and haven't been there but they have beautiful traditional feminine wear. Uh, I'm going to link some photos to you afterwards and I think that uh, based on your expansion of femininity you would love to try them on. That would be so cool. That is so exciting. Yes, the last time that he was there uh, my boyfriend got me a beautiful silk purse and now it's like my favorite thing. I wear it everywhere. Um, so that is so cool. That is adorable. Yes, they have beautiful fashion wear, you know. They have this idea that um, they just do mass production, but no, their skills in dressmaking, I think, is second to none if you truly get to experience that. And that applies to purses, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the closing question on the podcast is something that really encapsulates the meaning of SNAM and all the cool things we've been expanding on, and that is, what does science mean to you? Yeah, so this is really the home one question, what does science mean to me? So for me, I've always said science is two parts. The first part is learning how the world works around you. And then the second part is using that knowledge to make the world a better place. So I think it's our responsibility as scientists not only to use that inherent curiosity that I spoke about at the beginning of the podcast, but go that step further and use that knowledge to you know, make the world a better place, to make an innovation, to make a discovery, and you know, be kind to one another. Um, we're all here together on this planet um, and whether you benefit the planet or humanity or just make life easier for people, um, that's what science means to me. Absolutely. Combining the more analytical skills with a perspective that is willing to help those around you and really ease their lives by bringing in the newest discoveries and innovations while also maintaining the level of intimacy and interpersonal relationships, offering kindness and generosity. So thank you for expanding on that and for all the cool advice that I think is so inspirational to young girls that you shared in a podcast, your research journey, the things you've learned. And thank you for, you know, opening up about the mistakes you've made, because I think it truly shows a high level of humility. And that is an essential component that took you uh, where you are today. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, I, I really feel like as scientists, and especially with the platform that I've been given, um, I, I need to use it for good and to inspire other people like they inspired me. And I hope that maybe by some chance I inspire someone and they feel the same way and they pass the torch down and they inspire someone else. Um, and we create a legacy of, you know, inspiring the next generation of STEM, of women in STEM and of being kind to everyone. Absolutely. Dropping the STEM and dropping some truth bombs. So thank you again. <laughs> thank you. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.